Hello and happy Groundhog Day. It's time to read from the Sioux City Journal for today, Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. My name is John Reef, and I'll be bringing you the news today. Here's a look at what we'll be reading. We'll start with the weather, then do the mini editorial on the front page, and more stories from the front page, and then moving to the inside pages for more stories of local interest. At the 20-minute mark, we'll do the opinion page and the letters to the editor. At the 30-minute mark, the obituaries. And followed by sports and feature stories as time allows, wrapping up with Dear Abby and the weather one more time. Forecast for today, breezy in the afternoon, and north winds out of the, the uh, well, winds out of the north, 8 to 16 miles an hour, 18 degrees for the high today, under mostly sunny skies. Cold tonight, partly cloudy skies, uh, really cold, low of 11 below tonight. North-northeast winds at 4 to 8 miles an hour, so at least the wind chill isn't going to make it that much worse. Then on Friday, uh, cold, breezy in the afternoon, partly cloudy skies, a high of 18, and winds south-southeast at 8 to 16 miles an hour. Friday night, low down to 15, then warming up a bit on Saturday, partly sunny, a high of 37 degrees, and winds west-northwest at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Saturday night, mostly clear skies, low of 23, and then sunny. Maybe some clouds here and there on Sunday, a high of 38 degrees, winds northwest at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Sunday night, low down to 28, and then clouding up quite a bit on Monday, but a high of 39, and winds south-southeast at 7 to 14. Moving to the front page for the mini-editorial today, it's from Gene Nitschke, that's N-I-T-Z-S-C-H-K-E, Gene Nitschke of Sioux City, writes as follows, AP recently reported that President Biden will end the COVID-19 emergency on May 11th. Upon hearing that, I couldn't help but be reminded of the immortal words of NYPD Lieutenant John McClain, a.k.a. Bruce Willis, in the movie Die Hard when he said, Welcome to the party, pal! Again, that from Gene Nitschke of Sioux City. Top of the front page, Fed lifts rate by quarter point. This by Christopher Rugeber. And Dateline, Washington, D.C., the Federal Reserve extended its fight against high inflation Wednesday by raising its key interest rate by a quarter point, its eighth hike since March. The Fed signaled that even though inflation is easing, it remains high enough to require further rate hikes. At the same time, Chair Jerome Powell said at a news conference that the Fed recognizes that the pace of inflation has eased a signal that it could be nearing the end of its rate hikes. The stock and bond markets rallied during his news conference, suggesting they anticipate a forthcoming pause in the Fed's credit tightening. The Fed's latest move, though smaller than its previous hikes, will likely further raise the costs of many consumer and business loans and the risk of a recession. In a statement, Fed officials repeated language they've used before that says, quote, ongoing increases in the interest rate target range will be appropriate, end quote. That is widely interpreted to mean they will raise their benchmark rate again when they next meet in March and perhaps in May as well. The Fed's hike was announced a day after the government said pay and benefits for America's workers grew more slowly in the final three months of 2022 the third straight slowdown. That report could help reassure the Fed that wage gains won't accelerate inflation. Though the Fed kept language in its statement Wednesday suggesting that more rate hikes are in store, it did note for the first time that price pressures are cooling. The statement also hinted 
that it will likely stick with modest quarter-point hikes in coming months and is considering when to eventually suspend them. Quote, we will need substantially more evidence to be confident that inflation is on a long, sustained downward path, end quote, he said at the news conference. Continuing his quote, it would be very premature to declare victory or think that we really got this. We have to complete the job, end quote. Speculation is widespread, though, among Wall Street investors and many economists that with inflation continuing to cool, the Fed may soon decide to halt its aggressive drive to tighten credit. When they last met in December, the Fed's policymakers forecast that they would eventually raise their benchmark rate to a level that would require two additional quarter-point hikes. Yet Wall Street investors priced in only one more hike. Collectively, in fact, they expect the Fed to reverse course and actually cut rates by the end of this year. That optimism helped drive stock prices up and bond yields down, easing credit and pushing in the opposite direction that the Fed would prefer. The divide between the Fed and financial markets is important because rate hikes need to work through markets to affect the economy. The Fed directly controls its key short-term rate, but it owes only indirect control over borrowing rates that people and businesses actually pay for mortgages, corporate bonds, auto loans, and many others. The consequences can be seen in housing. The average fixed rate on a 30-year mortgage soared after the Fed first began hiking rates. Eventually, it topped 7%, more than twice where it stood before the increases began. At his news conference Wednesday, Powell brushed aside the concern that the Fed will end up tightening credit too much and trigger a recession. Quote, I still think there is a path to getting inflation down to 2%, end quote. The Fed's largest level, uh, quote, continuing the quote, without a significant economic decline or significant increase in unemployment, end quote, he said. Over the past several, uh, several months, the Fed's officials reduced the size of their rate increases from four unusually large three-quarter point hikes in a row last year to a half-point increase in December to Wednesday's quarter-point hike. The more gradual pace is intended to help the Fed navigate what will be a high-risk series of decisions this year. The central bank's latest move put its benchmark rate in a range of 4.5% to 4.75%, its highest level in about 15 years. The slowdown in inflation suggests it rate, its uh, rate hikes have started to achieve their goal, but inflation is still far above the central bank's 2% target. The risk is that with some sectors of the economy weakening, ever higher borrowing costs could tip the economy into a downturn later this year. Retail sales, for example, fell for two straight months, suggesting that consumers are becoming more cautious about spending. Manufacturing output fell for two months. On the other hand, the nation's job market, the most important pillar of the economy, remained strong with the un unemployment rate at a 53-year low at 3.5%. Other major central banks are also fighting high inflation with rate hikes. The European Central Bank is expected to raise its benchmark rate by a half point when it meets Thursday. Inflation in Europe, though slowing, remains high at 8.5% in January compared with a year earlier. The Bank of England is forecast to lift its rate at a meeting Thursday as well. 
Inflation has reached 10.5% in the United Kingdom. The International Monetary Fund has forecast that the UK economy will likely enter recession this year. In an inset picture on the front page, it shows the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell speaking during a Wednesday news conference at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Next story on the front page, Historical Happenings. It's titled, Quest for Moville Museum, Resident's Dream Will Soon Be a Reality. The state line Moville, Iowa. This is by Nick Hytrack. From the time she was a teenager attending Woodbury Central High School in Moville, Grace Linden wondered why her town didn't have a museum. It made no sense to her that Moville, home of the Woodbury County Fair and Woodbury County Library, didn't have a place where people could learn about the town's history, notable residents, and businesses that once occupied Main Street buildings. Quote, I always had a dream that Moville should have a museum, end quote, Linden said. A few decades later, that dream is about to come true. When Security National Bank finishes building its new bank in the upcoming months and vacates its present location on the town's main square at 2nd and Main Streets, the Mobile Historical Society will move into the historic building built in 1919. The focus then turns to filling a museum instead of wishing for one. Quote, it's something we can be proud of in Mobile to see what people did to build our city. Most people see the worth of it, end quote, said Lyndon, a retired Sioux City Public Museum curator who returned to Moville in 2016. The museum has been a low-key project since the Historical Society was formed in 2019, but it's time to raise the profile now that the museum is becoming reality. The Historical Society is hosting a museum launch party from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Sunday at the Moville Community Center. It's a way to step up the efforts to obtain more items, increase awareness, and raise money. Quote, it's really helped that people are beginning to notice us, end quote, said Lyndon, the Historical Society's president. It's easier to take notice when people know the museum is a sure thing, taking up residence in a building many of them have visited to conduct financial transactions. Charles Logan established First Trust and Savings Bank in 1919, built the current building, and later expanded into an adjacent building. The bank was owned and operated by the Logan family until Security National Bank bought it in 2015. Knowing the Historical Society was interested in the building, Security National Bank reached out to Linden two years ago to inform her of the bank's plans to build a new building on Frontage Road along U.S. Highway 20. Was the Historical Society, the bank asked, still interested in the current building for its museum? Lyndon didn't hesitate to answer. Quote, I said, of course, end quote, she said. Charles Logan's son, Howard Logan, donated the money to buy the building, which the Historical Society has owned since June. The bank will easily transform into a museum, Lyndon said, and no major renovations will be necessary. Quote, we're not going to change anything, Lyndon said, of the bank's interior. The teller windows, remnants from an era long past and fitted with bulletproof glass decades ago after a rash of bank robberies, and the bank's vault will remain. Offices will easily convert into display rooms, each featuring a different topic such as former businesses, Moville schools, and notable residents. 
There will be a research room where people can seek information in files full of old photos and papers, high school yearbooks, and other documents. Despite the lack of a building, the Historical Society has been compiling a collection, a portion of it currently on display at the Moville Senior Center, which has served as a temporary mu uh, museum. A couple afternoons a week, Lyndon is there cataloging artifacts and checking in donated items. Quote, wonderful things have walked through the door. It seems like every week we are here, someone is bringing a box in, end quote, she said. Judging by the number and quality of items dropped off, Lyndon said the desire of Moville residents to preserve their town's history is obvious. The museum could pull travelers passing by on US-20 into town, but most likely will be a place for locals, be they senior citizens or schoolchildren on a field trip, to learn more about their hometown. Quote, every community needs something to pull themselves together as a community, as a group, and say, we need this, end quote, Lyndon said. Continuing her quote, our kids need to learn history, end quote. Lyndon said she hopes the museum will give residents a sense of history and pride about where they come from. Quote, it's telling the story of Moville, Iowa to everyone, end quote, she said. A story that soon will be an open book for anyone to walk in and enjoy. On page A2, there are several inset pictures. One shows Charles Logan uh, established First Trust and Savings Bank and built the building at 2nd and Main Streets in Moville, Iowa in 1919. The building is pictured. The Moville Historical Society has purchased the building and will convert it into the town's first museum after its current occupant, Security National Bank, completes its new building and moves out. In the second picture, it shows Moville Historical Society President Grace Linden showing off a, uh, a Woodbury Central sweatshirt she wore in high school. The school history will be one of the many exhibits when the Historical Society establishes Mobile's first city museum in coming months. In the picture on the uh, right below it, uh, next to it, Linden talks about items in the Society's temporary displays at the Moville Senior Center. The front page is another photo. It shows uh, Grace Linden holding a sign advertising the town's former city cafe, one of hundreds of artifacts the Historical Society has collected. The Historical Society has purchased the Security National Bank building on the city's main street with plans to convert it into Moville's first museum. On the sign, it shows home-cooked meal, says City Cafe Moville, steaks, chicken sandwiches, delicious pie and rolls, and it says Sue Olson, proprietor. One other picture, it shows a dress dating back to 1912 and donated to the Moville Historical Society that is hanging in a temporary display at the Moville Senior Center. Next story on the front page, Siouxland Chamber talks economic development. This date line Des Moines by Caleb McCullough. Members of the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce met with Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and lawmakers on Wednesday during the annual Des Moines Legislative Day at the Iowa State Capitol. The group discussed economic development, quality of life issues, workforce issues, and education with lawmakers and state leaders, Chamber Vice President Barbara Sloniker said. Quote, the importance of it bringing business owners and elected officials to the Capitol to meet with the people making the decisions about our legislature and the state of Iowa, end quote, Sloniker said. Siouxland business leaders, chamber board members, education leaders, 
and elected officials were among the group that traveled to the capital to represent the Siouxland Chamber. During the group's meeting with Reynolds, Sloniker said the governor noted Iowa has been named among the top states to live, and she credited business development with that ranking. Quote, what I really appreciated was when she said, I didn't do that, you guys did that, end quote, Sloniker said. Continuing her quote, what she is saying is, it is the business that drives the economy, end quote. Sloniker pointed to Destination Iowa, an ongoing program designed to attract tourists and residents to Iowa as one state program the Chamber has benefited from. The Siouxland Regional Trail System, which will connect several Siouxland uh, cities, was one of the first projects to receive a grant in the program. The group met with legislative leaders from both parties in the House and the Senate, as well as Iowa's Economic Development Director and Reynolds' liaison on work-based learning. The meetings were focused on ways the state can boost economic development and improve business opportunities in Siouxland. Quote, we are a business organization, 1,400 members, and these are the things we're bringing to the legislature, talking to them face-to-face -face about what's important to us from our community in Northwest Iowa, in quote she said. The group also discussed workforce initiatives in their meetings, apprenticeships, internships, and other education measures are all important to building Iowa's workforce, she said, and state measures like child care and housing are also vital. Reynolds has devoted funding to apprenticeship programs in the past, and this year added new funding to an apprenticeship program for health care workers. Quote, there's other things that are impediments to people getting back into the workforce, whether it be child care assistance or workforce housing. So those also go hand in hand with the economic development piece that we advocate for, end quote, she said. It was the 46th annual lobby day for the Siouxland Chamber. Sloniker said the Chamber benefits from the face-to-face -face meetings and dialogue with decision makers at the state level. Quote, when you bring business A into the legislature or business B, they're helping contribute to the economy, and they're the ones saying face-to-face, -face, looking directly at the legislature, this is what we need. You can never underestimate that importance, end quote, she said. Shows an inside picture on page A2 of Siouxland Chamber of Commerce Vice President Barbara Sloniker and President Christopher McGowan posing for a photo at the Iowa State Capitol on Wednesday. Last story on the front page, GOP moles fines for school violation. Proposal involves divisive concepts law. This is by Aaron Murphy and Dateline Des Moines. Iowa schools are prohibited from teaching so-called divisive concepts under a state law passed in 2021, but now some Republican state lawmakers are looking to put some teeth on the law by adding fines for educators who violate it. School districts would be fined between $500 and $5,000 if they are found in violation of the divisive concepts law under a proposal that received its first legislative approval Wednesday from the Iowa House Republicans at the Iowa Capitol. The 2021 law defines divisive concepts and includes, for example, teaching students that moral character is determined by one's race or sex, or that the United States and Iowa are fundamentally or systematically racist. Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the proposal to add fines is needed because he believed some school districts, he did not name any, are violating the divisive concepts law. 
Quote, it would appear to us that this hasn't been complied with in some school districts, that it has been blatantly ignored in some school districts, or that they're just simply trying to play word games and keep doing the same thing, end quote, Holt said during Wednesday's legislative hearing on the proposal. Opponents of the proposal said it does not provide due process for educators who are accused of violating the divisive concepts law. The legislation states that once a complaint is lodged, the state education department will make a ruling. There is no provision for the school district or educator in question to state their case. Quote, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of due process protections for the educators in this. It seems like it's just, there's an accusation, someone decides whether or not they did it, and that's it. End quote, said Keenan Crow with the LGBTQ Advocacy Group 1 Iowa. Education groups also raised concerns over a provision in the proposed legislation that would require the state education department to accept from students and parents reports of possible violations of the divisive concepts law and require the department to compile those allegations and report them to lawmakers. Such a report would be a public document. Michelle Johnson with the Iowa Association of School Boards said that requirement could produce a report that, quote, suggests wrongdoing before anything is proven, end quote. And a spokesperson for the state education department said the department would not be able to handle the anticipated volume of reports of possible violations in an adequate time frame without adding more employees. Holt and Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull who chairs the House Education Committee, signed off on advancing the House Study Bill 112, which becomes eligible for consideration by the House Education Committee. Holt said he is cognizant of some of the concerns raised and signaled a willingness to address some of them in the bill. In a small title, it shows school transparency. School districts also would be required to publish classroom curriculum and library materials online and have in place a method for parents to ask for the removal of those materials under another bill advanced Wednesday by House Republicans. House File 5 is similar to the House's proposed school transparency legislation from last year. Majority Republicans wound up not passing any bills on the topic because the Republican-controlled Senate and House could not agree. At a legislative hearing Wednesday, education groups said they are mostly neutral about the bill and that districts are already doing much of what's prescribed in the legislation. It's time now for the opinion page and it's other voices today by the Des Moines Register this letter is and it's titled Celebrate Cycling by Committing to Bicycle Safety. The Iowa Code elevates all sorts of interests above cyclists' interest in not being mowed down by drivers. July will mark 50 years since the idea that became the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa, or RAGBRAI, was hatched. The first ride was actually in late August. But despite a half a century of week-long celebrations of bicycle recreation and the state as a whole, Iowa's law remains less friendly to bicyclists than many other states. The Iowa Code elevates all sorts of interests above cyclists' interest in not being mowed down by drivers. A driver who only looks at a phone before a crash, for instance, instead of manipulating its controls, is not criminally liable under the distracted driving law. 
Penalties that apply after severe crashes involving a pedestrian or a four-way stop do not apply to the same crash involving a bicyclist. Confusion persists about how much responsibility drivers have to give bicyclists space on a road. Iowa has made strides in setting aside spaces for cyclists, including networks of trails in many parts of the state and dedicated lanes in some cities. That's great, and each advance is a boon for safety, but the availability of such avenues does not change cyclists' right to use most roads or motorists' responsibility to be aware of their surroundings. The trails were built to promote and facilitate cycling, not to segregate it from driving. It's also worth emphasizing that the primary goal of stricter laws and stiffer penalties is not to come down harder on people after traffic accidents. Yes, people who are clearly malicious or incompetent or negligent should lose privileges and face other consequences. But distracted driving in particular is a widespread scourge practiced by those who might well think that they are quite attentive and defensive drivers. Iowa State Patrol officials say it's involved in about a fifth of crashes. So it's awareness more than deterrence that is needed most to help more people realize that that a quick glance at a phone is often not that quick and that a brief look is all the time that's needed for a deadly crash. State lawmakers have a chance, again, to correct bike law shortcomings this winter. Advocates have for years been trying to require drivers to use electronics only in hands-free mode, but the bills keep dying at the statehouse. A hearing on Senate File 60 on Monday included testimony from dozens of people about close calls and tragedies involving distracted drivers. Relatives of Ellen Bingston, a 28-year-old killed while riding a bike outside Charles City, told lawmakers about the grief of losing her and their horror at a judge deciding to dismiss the charges against a pickup truck driver who investigators said was looking at his phone for over nine seconds before striking her from behind. The new bill includes several exceptions that would permit emergency personnel and people in certain circumstances to use phones and other devices while driving. It's hard to think of a reason to to slow walk this change any longer. The current law is too wishy-washy to convey to Iowa drivers that they have no business focusing their eyes or their attention on a device while they're behind the wheel. The risks are too great and far too unpredictable, especially when slower-moving cyclists and pedestrians are involved. It's a reform that everybody at the State House could be proud of. And, of course, lawmakers need not stop there. They could adopt more measures proposed by advocates, including the Iowa Bicycle Coalition. A bill to correct the inconsistency and penalties when bicyclists are injured or killed has gained the approval of a subcommittee. It's also not too late to introduce legislation to have Iowa join the majority of states that require drivers passing bicycles to leave at least three feet of space. And more broadly, there is much more room to keep expanding recreation spaces by funding the voter-approved Land and Water Conservation Fund through either the state's billions of surplus dollars or a dedicated sales tax increase, or both. Taking these steps would add another reason to uh, party to this summer's 50th RAGBRAI, and not just for Iowans. Visitors from around the country and the world could take home with them stories of how Iowa has taken the lead in demonstrating that it cares about cycling 52 weeks a year. An inset picture at the bottom shows a cyclist pumping his fist as riders leave Sergeant Bluff to begin RAGBRAI on July 24th. 
And that is from, again, the Des Moines Register and other voices on the opinion page. Moving now back to page A2 for some briefs. Agency taking applications for heating bill assistance. The state line Sioux City. Applications are being accepted until April 30th for low-income Iowans to receive help paying a portion of their home heating costs. The Community Action Agency of Siouxland is taking online, over-the-phone, and in-person applications from low-income homeowners and renters to receive income or to receive assistance from the Low-Income Home Energy Assistance Program, or LIHEAP, L-I-H-E-A-P. Assistance is based on several factors, including total household economy, number of household members, dwelling type, and heating fuel type. For more information or to apply online, you can visit casasuland.org. That's casasuland.org. In-person or phone app appointments may be scheduled by calling 712-274-1610. Applicants will need to provide identification, a copy of their most recent heating bill, and proof of household members' gross income either for the past 30 days or the past calendar year. Next brief, Sioux City man sentenced to federal prison on gun charge. A Sioux City man with numerous previous felony convictions was sentenced Tuesday to nine years in federal prison for illegal possession of a firearm. Joe Mario Smith, 35, pleaded guilty in September in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Smith was found in possession of weapons and drugs during a March 11th traffic stop after officers smelled marijuana coming from inside the vehicle in which Smith was the lone occupant. They can they uh, conducted a search in which they found a loaded semi-automatic rifle that had been spray-painted to look like a toy. A handgun-style BB gun, a shotgun shell, four baggies containing methamphetamine, and a plastic bag containing marijuana. Next brief, Lamar's teen charged with sex abuse. This is Dateline Rock Valley. A Lamar's Iowa teenager has been arrested and charged with having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Rock Valley Police arrested Skyler Myers, 18, on January 24th, a week after a warrant was issued for his arrest. He is charged with one count of third-degree sexual abuse, a Class C felony. According to a complaint filed in Sioux, City, uh, Sioux County District Court, Myers had sex with a girl who, by law, is unable to consent in December at a Rock Valley home. Two other sexual encounters in other jurisdictions were reported, but a search of online court records found no other charges filed against Myers who admitted to the sex acts, court documents said. Two arrested after shots fired in Milford. This dayline Milford, Iowa. Two men were arrested Tuesday after an altercation in which one of them fired a gun. Milford police were dispatched to 1209 6th Street at 5.39 p.m. for a report of shots fired. After arriving at the scene, officers determined two men, one armed with a knife, the other with a handgun, had gotten into an altercation. According to court documents, Neil Moore had threatened Guillermo Perez Valdez with a knife. Perez Valdez went into his apartment, retrieved a handgun, and fired a warning shot into the ground from the second floor walkway. There were no injuries, and both men were arrested and booked into the Dickinson County Jail. Moore, 32, of Esterville, Iowa, was charged with assault with a dangerous weapon and trespassing both misdemeanors. Perez Valdez, 31, of Milford, faces misdemeanor charges of assault with a dangerous weapon and reckless use of a firearm. Last brief, man sentenced to 11-plus years in prison for sexual abuse. This dateline Omaha. A Winnebago, Nebraska man was sentenced Monday to more than 11 years in federal prison for having sexual contact with a minor. 
Robert McClellan, 39, pleaded guilty in October in U.S. District Court in Omaha to sexual abuse of a minor. He was sentenced to 135 months in prison and must serve 10 years on supervised release release after completing his prison sentence. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office in May 2020, McClellan touched a girl who was under age 10 and made her touch him. When the girl asked him to stop, he did. He later admitted to having inappropriate contact with the girl during an interview with authorities. Time now for the obituaries. We have three of them today. The first one from Sioux City, Glenda Jean Ellis. That's E-L-L-I-S. Glenda Jean Ellis, 71 years old of Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, January 26th at Sunrise Retirement Community where she was surrounded by lifelong and close friends. Abiding by family wishes, cremation has taken place and a celebration of life service will be held later in the year. Glenda was born in Sioux City on August 5th, 1951 to John Ellis and Francine uh, Petrosich. She was the oldest of six siblings. She graduated from Helan High School and worked at Red Onion, National Optical Wholesalers, Boulevard Food Store, and went on to retire from Mercy Medical as a switchboard operator. Glenda was a daughter, a sister, a great friend, and an awesome aunt. She loved her only niece and eight nephews so much. She was the life of the party with her witchy laugh and great sense of humor. You would never catch Glenda frowning, always smiling, telling a joke, or making you laugh because she was a very funny person. She loved blues music, classic cars and sports, especially the Iowa Hawkeyes. She loved crafting crafting, and made the best door wreaths. Next from Sioux City, James Greek Mihes, M-E-H-E-S-S. James Greek Mihes, 81 years old, passed away Tuesday, January 31st. Services will be held at a later date. Arrangements are with Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel. The final one for today from Sioux City, Ida Backhaus, that's B-A-C-K-H-A-U-S. Ida Backhaus, 93 years old, passed away Wednesday, January 25th at Mercy One Hospital in Sioux City. Services will be 2 p.m. on Saturday at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel, 6200 Morningside Avenue in Sioux City. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. Interment burial will be at 1 p.m. on Monday at Memorial Park Cemetery in Sioux City. Online condolences may be sent to MeyerBrosChapels.com. Ida was born September 19, 1929 to Clarence A. and Emily E. Alner Thomas Sr. in Iowa. She attended Anthon High School. She later went to Ellis School of Cosmetology, graduating in 1948. Ida married George R. Madison on May 16, 1946 in Elk Point, South Dakota. He passed away February 6, 1980. To this marriage, they had three children. Ida was a beautician at J.C. Penney's for numerous years, where she retired in 1990. She married Edwin A. Backhouse on August 3, 1990 in Elk Point. He passed away March 18, 1992. You could always find Ida painting, sewing, making crafts, or playing cards. She enjoyed her winter months in Arizona and Florida. The one thing Ida loved most to do was dancing. Her laughter and smile will truly be missed by her family and friends. A special thanks to her neighbors, David and Bethany Hahn. Moving now to page A5. Nursing home owner closing six Iowa facilities. This by Tom Barton and Dateline uh, Des Moines. More than 260 Iowa nursing home and assisted living facility residents must search for a new place to live. 
Six Iowa Care facilities have been placed in receivership and are shutting their doors after the owner informed state officials that those facilities could no longer continue operations. The owner of Blue Care Homes, LLC, notified state regulators January 23rd that it was unable and or unwilling to continue operations and would not be able to meet the needs of its residents at four nursing facilities and two assisted living facilities in Fort Dodge, Humboldt, Winterset, and Mekokita. The Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals announced Monday that the facilities have been placed in receivership and a temporary manager appointed to assume control of the operations of the facilities until all 263 residents can be relocated to a facility of their choosing, according to a news release. Federal and state regulations require the nursing facilities to remain open for 60 days, while assisted living facilities must stay open for 90 days while residents are being safely relocated. Residents, staff, and families have been notified of the receivership and closures, and additional meetings will occur in coming days, according to the Department of Inspection and Appeals. The department, the temporary manager, uh, managed care organizations, and the Office of the Long-Term Care Ombudsman will assist residents in determining where they would like to move, and DIA staff will continue to monitor each of these six facilities throughout the transition period, according to the release. This is the second time the department has filed for receivership. The first was last July for a facility in Sioux City. Affected nursing and assisted living facilities are Webster Post Acute Rehabilitation, also known as Fort Dodge Villa Care Center in Fort Dodge, Humboldt Wellness and Rehabilitation, also known as Humboldt Care Center in Humboldt, Timber City Wellness and Rehabilitation, also known as Crestridge Care Center in Makokita, and Madison Wellness and Rehabilitation, also known as Winterset Care Center North in Winterset. Also two others, Villa Cottages in Fort Dodge and Madison Square Assisted Living and Memory Care in Winterset. Moving now to the sports section, we're going to start by talking about some high school wrestling. SBL earns another trip to state tourney. Warriors to battle Humboldt in first round of state duels. This by Dave Dreesen and Dateline Sergeant Bluff. For the fifth straight season, Sergeant Bluff Luton's wrestling team is headed to the state duels tournament. Every year is special because it's a different group of guys and a different dynamic, said head coach Clint Katum, who has led SBL teams to a total of eight state meets. This year is probably a little more special, just because my oldest son and his friends are all seniors. I've been coaching those guys since they were in kindergarten. SBL earned the number three seed Wednesday in this year's eight-team Iowa High School Athletic Association tournament on Saturday at the X-Stream Arena in Coralville. The Warriors Warriors will face number six seed Humboldt in the first round at 11 a.m. The Warriors, who finished a school-best fourth at last year's tournament, are looking to bring home their elusive state title. I think it's probably the best team we've had, at least in the four years that I've been here, Senior Garrett McHugh said. I think if there's a year to do it, this would be the year. SBL hosted a three-team Class 2A regional duel in Sergeant Bluff Tuesday night. In the finals, McHugh pinned Atlantic's Cohen Bruce at the 52nd mark, sealing the match in another state appearance for the Warriors. McHugh raised his hand and then ran to the sidelines where his teams high-fived him as the home crowd erupted in cheers. Going into it, I didn't know that that was a clincher, but I just knew I had to get a pin, McHugh said. The Warriors won the first seven matches, including two by falls and two others by major decisions to build a commanding 32-0 lead. 
Atlantic battled back to take the next two bouts, one by a fall and another in a major decision to cut the lead to 32-10. McHugh's six points for his fall at 195 pounds gave the SBL an insurmountable lead with just four matches to go. We didn't start at a bad place for us, Kadem said. Sometimes in wrestling, when you can get out and put a bunch of points on a team, it can kind of suck the wind out of their sails. Now, I knew Atlantic wasn't going to let that bother them, and we were going to keep, and they were going to keep coming back. You can start to do the math after a little bit and know that maybe you're a little bit safer and a little bit closer to a victory. Both teams adjusted their normal lineups at a bid to get an edge. McHugh, ranked in the top 10 in the state at 182, moved up a weight to wrestle at 195. Gage Hoffman, who normally wrestles at 195, moved up to 220, and and, uh, Kadem elevated Cassidy Craig from the junior varsity to start at 132 pounds, where his younger son, Bo, is ranked in the top uh, top five statewide. Bo Kadem, a sophomore, moved up a weight to 138, where Atlantic forfeited. We were hoping for a certain matchup, our style versus their style of kid, or our talent versus their talent, Clint Kadem said. Kadem's oldest son, Ty, a top five ranked wrestler at 145 pounds, won a 13-5 major decision over Atlantic's Easton O'Brien. Ty Kadem recalled what Noah Parmalee, a senior on the 2021-22 team, told him heading into the postseason that season. I'll never forget it, he said. I don't know what it's like to not go to the state tournament, Kadem said. That thought was just going through my head all week. I was like, man, I really don't want to find out what that's like. We have a special, special group of guys who put it out on the line for every single one of us. I was never worried for a second. We all got each other's back, so I knew we were going to pull it out one way or another. If SBL defeats Humboldt, the Warriors could meet the winner or would meet the winner of the West Delaware-Webster City first round match. West Delaware, the defending state champions, beat SBL in last year's semifinals. Looming on the opposite side of the Class 2A bracket is top seed and number one ranked Osage, who faces Williamsburg in the first round. Atlantic advanced to the regional finals against SBL after edging Boyd and Hull Rock Valley 42-31 in the semifinals earlier Tuesday night. It shows the results of the regional duels at Sergeant Bluff Tuesday night as Sergeant Bluff beat Luton 41-28. Shows an inset picture on page uh, C2 of Sergeant Bluff Luton coach Clint Kadem instructing Cassidy Craig in the 132-pound uh, match during the 2A reg, uh, regional duels at Sergeant Bluff Luton Tuesday. The Warriors advance to the state duels for the fifth straight year.
This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. An article we're reading now is entitled Manna Colonies Maintain Rich History in Iowa. The Icarians weren't the only communal society to play a role in Iowa's culinary history. The famous Manna Colonies in eastern Iowa were also founded on communal principles, but unlike the Icarians, the Amanas had a strong religious component. By the 1700s, people across northern Europe had become dissatisfied with the rituals and intellectualism of the Lutheran Church and had begun to rebel and separate from the Church. Adherents to a new faith called the Community of True Inspiration formed their own self-reliant communities. Known as the Inspirationists, these men and women and their families found refuge in central Germany. Persecution and an economic depression in Germany in the 1830s, however, forced the community to search for a new home. Hundreds of inspirationists immigrated to America in 1843-44 in search of religious freedom. They pooled their resources and established a community named Ebenezer near modern-day Buffalo, New York. All property was held in common. Farms and factories were established, and the community of nearly 1,200 people prospered. When more farmland was needed for the growing community, the inspirationists looked to Iowa, where attractively priced land was available. A committee was sent to inspect land in Iowa in the mid-1850s. The Iowa River Valley proved particularly promising. Here, the men found acres of rich soil, good timber, water, limestone, sandstone, and clay necessary for establishing a new community. The leaders chose the name Amana, meaning Remain True, from Song of Solomon 4.8. Starting in 1855, six villages were established a mile or two apart, including Amana, East Amana, West Amana, South Amana, High Amana, and Middle Amana. The village of Homestead was added in 1861, giving the Amana colonies access to the railroad. Each village had its own school, farm, and craft industries to make it virtually self-sufficient. The communal way of life was continued in Amana, much like it had been in Ebenezer. All property was held in common. Families were assigned housing in buildings owned by the Amana Society. Each individual worked at a designated job. Religious life was the strong unifying factor. In the seven villages, residents received a home, medical care, meals, all household necessities, and schooling for their children. Property and resources were shared. Men and women were assigned jobs by the village council of brethren. No one received a wage. Farming and the production of wool and calico supported the community. But village enterprises, from clockmaking to brewing, were vital. Well-crafted products became a hallmark of the Amana colonies, which are still known for exceptional wines and more. People were called to work before dawn by the gentle tolling of the bell in the village tower in Old Amana, where the pace of life was much different than today. More than 50 communal kitchens provided three, meal, three daily meals as well as mid-morning and mid-afternoon snacks to all colonists. These kitchens were operated by the women of the Amana colonies and were well supplied by the village smokehouse, bakery, ice house, and dairy, as well as the orchards, vineyards, and huge communal gardens maintained by the villagers. During the growing season, there was plenty of work to do in the gardens and kitchens, from planting and harvesting to preparing and storing vegetables from cabbage to turnips. Around 1900, for example, it wasn't unusual for the communal kitchens in just one Amana village to produce more than 400 gallons of sauerkraut. 
It took a lot of food and labor to sustain the villages within the Amana colonies. Children attended school six days a week, year-round, until age 14. Boys were then assigned jobs on the farm or in the craft shops, while girls were assigned to a communal kitchen or garden. Work and faith were often intertwined and were intertwined in the villages, where the inspirationists attended worship services 11 times per week. Times were changing by the early 20th century, however. Improved communications and transportation in the 1920s began to exert their influence on the Amana colonies. In addition, the collapse of the American economy following the stock market crash of October 1929 left no aspect of daily life untouched. The Great Depression and disastrous farm economy made the isolated communal life in Amana socially and economically impossible. In the early 1930s, Amana set aside its communal way of life. A strong desire on the part of the residents to maintain their community finally propelled propelled the change, according to Amana history shared by the Amana Colonies Convention and Visitors Bureau. By 1932, the communal way of life was seen as a barrier to achieving individual goals. Rather than leave or watch their children leave the community, the people of the Amana villages changed. Members voted to abandon the communal system and established the Amana Society Incorporated, a profit-sharing corporation to manage the farmland, mills, and larger enterprises. Private enterprise was encouraged. While this separated the economic aspect of the community from the church, the Amana Church Society continued to be the religious foundation of the community. Today, the seven villages of the Amana colonies are among the state's most popular tourist attractions. Declared a National Historic Landmark in 1965, the Amana colonies attract hundreds of thousands of visitors annually who come to experience a place where the past is cherished and hospitality is a way of life. The streets of the Amana colonies, lined with their historic brick, stone, and clapboard houses, their flower and vegetable gardens, and their lanterns and walkways, recall the Amana of yesterday. Many museums are available for tours, including the communal kitchen in Middle Amana, preserved just as it was on the day in 1932 when the last communal meal was served in the colony. The communal kitchen lets you step back in time. Guides explain kitchen routines and share insights on communal life. Guests can also enjoy a satisfying taste of Amana history and hospitality at the famous Ox Yoke Inn a full-service restaurant founded in 1940 in the village of Amana. The Ox Yoke Inn's nationally recognized reputation of fresh, quality food served family-style reflects the restaurant's old-world signature dishes. The Ox Yoke Inn serves traditional German and American favorites at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as on Sunday brunch buffet. Glimpses of the past are also preserved in some of the gardens in the Amana colonies. With the passing of the Old Order in 1932, the number of the society's large vegetable gardens and orchards dwindled, but Larry Reddick and his wife Wilma still grow some of the colony's heirloom varieties in their fourth-generation South Amana vegetable garden. In 1980, they founded a seed bank to preserve heirloom plants for the future generations. In his 2013 book, Gardening the Amana Way, Reddick's chapters on modern vegetable and flower gardening in today's Amana colonies showcase his cottage in the meadow gardens. 
now listed with the Smithsonian's Archives of American Gardens. Old intermingles with new across Reddick's Gardens as heirloom lettuce keeps company with the latest cucumber variety. It's a living tribute to the unique history of Amanda colonies and one of America's longest-lived communal societies. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary, culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.